Uh, so I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 5, 11 uh, through to the end of chapter 6. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews weaves uh, between soaking us in the promises of Jesus and, and then teaching us, encouraging us, warning us of what that promise now means for us as, as we live out our lives as his people. Uh, so it tells us, I guess, not just what God has done for us, uh, but what God is now doing in us as Jesus' people. And the passage that we've just read now uh, in chapter 5, 11 through 6, 20 is taking us into that second thread that Hebrews weaves into this, explaining what it now means for us to live out our lives as believers. What is a genuine response to the gospel? What does it look like to live a life of true faith? 
And the thing that it says on that is, is that believing the gospel, that is, having faith in Jesus, necessarily leads to growth. Growth. Believing in Jesus leads to growth. Uh, with the metaphor in 5.11 of, of growing up from, from needing milk to, to being able to take solid food, the passage there explains, yeah, believers are going to grow up to, to a maturity of their faith. It contrasts those who are unskilled in the word of righteousness with those who train and, and practice so that they get better through God's word at, at choosing right from wrong in their lives. So, so, so we don't just say, oh, great, yes, I believe in Jesus. Now let me get back to whatever I was doing. No, uh, we are saved eternally in Jesus and, and then we're slowly transformed by his word throughout the rest of this life we are transformed under the hand of the holy spirit upon us we grow to maturity it's not an optional side matter it's part of the promise to believe in jesus is to fully entrust ourselves to him such that we follow him and and in following him we we, we let him get on with this process of of making us new that's something he also promised for us. So there's actually a rebuke here at the end of chapter 5 in Hebrews. The readers of this letter, they're not mature in their faith and, and so they need to keep following Jesus is the call there. Following Jesus into this process of Christian maturity, verse 11. And this, this rebuke actually, as you can probably tell just by the opening words, it, it interrupts the flow of thought where we were last week. We were thinking about Jesus being appointed by God as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, a child, but, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by, by constant practice, distinguishing good from evil. It's not just the first readers of this letter, though. We need to hear this too, don't we? We need to let this probe our hearts and check our faith, don't we? Have we become unteachable? Are we letting God's word grow us to maturity? Are we training, practicing, uh, discerning good from evil so that we are pursuing a genuinely righteous way of life now? as Jesus' people. If we think that we believe in Jesus, but we're resisting his teaching and correction in our life, then, then we need the scripture to set us clear on this. Genuine faith, repentant, saving faith, should lead to growth. If we really have come to trust in Jesus, then we should be finding ourselves challenged by God's word sharpened by God's word from the metaphor last week. And through that process, we would be growing under God's word. Uh, how? Well, to be more like Christ is what Christian growth is about. If we were to ask, you know, what does true faith look like, then a pretty frank answer would just be growth. I don't think we can settle for a concept of faith in Jesus that doesn't naturally flow into that. The Bible won't let us. 
settle for a, a concept of faith in Jesus any less than that. Living under Jesus should bring about change, growth, maturity, it's called here. It's actually like the farming metaphors that Jesus used to often use in the Gospels. So, for example, in Matthew 13, he said this, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. If we are of good soil, if we are of true faith in Jesus, then the natural outcome will be growth. Christian maturity, to be more like Christ and more and more and more. A yield, a yield in our life for Jesus, 30 or 60 or 100. He's not, he's not just throwing around seed, is Jesus. He's growing a crop. Don't be overwhelmed by the numbers in his parable, by the way. That's not the point, I don't think. 100 is actually about average. 100 is about what a seed of wheat would ordinarily just, just grow up and, and produce if it just grew up. It, it depends on the strain, of course, but as it happens, a typical wheat plant has, has on average uh, five heads of wheat with 22 seeds of, head in each, uh, seeds of grain in each head, and, and five times 22 is 110, actually, just so you know. So don't, don't be sidetracked by the numbers. His numbers are below average. Just sit under Jesus' word and let him bring you to maturity is his point. And just as we can't settle for a concept of faith that doesn't flow into growth, nor can we settle for a concept of growth that isn't underpinned by faith. In fact, without faith it is impossible to please God, the scriptures do say. Chapter 6 and verse 1 here, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. The letters here not suggesting we, we just abandon all of that stuff. On the contrary, it says it's the foundation. It's telling us to do the natural thing now and let God build on that foundation in our lives. The elementary doctrine of Christ is fundamental. It is the foundation of the growth that then follows. So there's only one way into true change through Jesus. Indeed, the call of verse 1 there is actually written in the original text in the passive form. Therefore, leaving the first word of the Christ, we should be carried into maturity. This is what God does in his people when they follow him. Not everyone, of course, is brought into such things. Now, seemingly, some people at first understand the gospel in, in some kind of, at least at some intellectual level, they, they understand it, but they ultimately reject it. Rocky people in, in that parable from Jesus I mentioned before in Matthew 13, he goes on, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Thornbush people too, in his parable, he goes on, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 
some people hear and, and even receive the gospel in some insufficient way, only then to choke or, or wither away when it comes to God's word. Just like that parable of Jesus, this, this next part of, of Hebrews is quite unsettling, chapter 6 and verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The analogy for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I'm sure some of you struggle with those words, perhaps grieve for a loved one over words like that. And indeed it is very clear, it is a very strong warning, one that we must hear. If we strip it down and cut to the chase, it says it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have fallen away. Like every word uh, warning in in God's word, that, that should cause us to tremble. I think there's something wrong if that doesn't cause you to tremble. But if we get the wrong end of the stick on these warnings, then, then these kinds of warnings can cause us a lot of unnecessary worry or grief in the life of a Christian. Let's see if we can just step through those uh, terrifying verses uh, calmly, as calmly as we can, with some points of reference maybe for, for trying to understand what it must mean. Uh, first of all, notice in that section the language is written in the third person. So the writers of this letter are not talking about the people they're writing to, as indeed they make clear after this when they switch back to the second person uh, in verse 9 when they say, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Quite a difference there. And yet they still go ahead and, and write this warning for those who need to hear it. Secondly, this is not sort of hypothetical uh, talk. The, the strong language here is, is actually consistent with warnings all through the scriptures that, that if we have not genuinely entrusted ourselves to Jesus Christ, we will perish. There's no getting around that. It's a truth that's illustrated by Jesus all the time, actually, like in that parable of the different soils that I was just referring to, or, or at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember our series a while back there, he almost lands his whole sermon on the idea of true and false disciples being clarified at the judgment. Or there's the parable of the weeds growing in his field and so on and so on. This is very real. This is stuff that Jesus warned us about all the time. So thirdly, the thrust of this passage is actually nothing new. This is the same blessing or curse language that's flowing all the way through the Bible. Most recently, we actually heard the same warning, more or less, in chapter 2 and verses 1 to 4 of Hebrews, making sure that we heed the word of Christ, lest we should perish. And and again, through most of chapters 3 and 4, that was the message. Take care not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, like the Israelites who fell in the wilderness. And there's still a couple of more like warnings coming in Hebrews, just so you know. 
Fourthly, we must always interpret any scripture in light of all of scripture. Because it's all God-breathed, must all make sense. It must all be consistent with itself. So, So this passage here cannot mean that those whom God has saved can be snatched out of Jesus' hand. He has promised us that that cannot happen. The rest of the Bible, even this letter to the Hebrews, even the end of this very passage we are reading today makes it crystal clear that when we do come to find salvation in Jesus Christ, that salvation is unshakable. Moreover, the text here isn't talking about some kind of accidental fall, so to speak. This is conscious and hardened rejection of the truth it's describing. The people in question here have heard and understood. They've even experienced in some way the truth and the beauty and the blessings of the gospel, but they've hardened their hearts against it. By rejecting what Jesus did for us at the cross, whether that's because they're saying, oh, oh, we don't need what Jesus did at the cross, or or maybe they're saying, we need something else but what Jesus did at the cross. Well, either way, they're holding what he did at the cross up to contempt. They've joined the scoffers and the mockers that were all around Jesus' cross, but they haven't come to it in repentant faith. And it shouldn't come as much of a surprise then that those who reject Jesus and his promise cannot in, in some other way be, be brought back into repentance. If they could, well, why did he die? No, the only way into repentance and forgiveness and, and salvation and life is, is via the grace of God as the Holy Spirit applies what Jesus did on the cross for us to our hearts. If people reject that, if they reject Jesus' cross, the very means by which God brings people into repentance unto forgiveness and life, then then there is no other way. Finally, we should note too that some of the language sounds final, and yet in other ways, this seems to be coming to us as a warning. You and I can't bring anyone back, but, but they're only near to being cursed. All things considered, I think these verses are speaking about people who had understood the gospel of repentance for forgiveness in Jesus' name. That is the gospel. They've understood it in some sense, but they've not received it in their heart. They've not truly received this gospel in their heart. In the particular context of, uh, of when this letter was written, maybe they were turning back to the old way of Judaism. Uh, Judaism that the letter has spent the first five chapters explaining has now been fulfilled in Christ. It was all pointing to and waiting for Christ. Maybe in this new church community they'd heard and understood that new revelation of God's word in Christ and experienced God's power and blessing in this new community. But in the end, they never really came to a personal trust in Jesus. Belief then, faith in Jesus that is, is personal. It's personal. It's not enough to just seek cover in the crowd or seek cover behind our identity or our heritage or anything like that. So say our family or which church we go to or anything like that. No, we need a personal relationship in our hearts with Jesus. We need to personally acknowledge and repent of our sin and trust in him to have paid for our sins on his cross 
and then follow. When we come to him like so, we will find that we will persevere through trial and temptation. Not going to be like those uh, plants that grew up and were, were withered away or choked. No, we need to see that we're not going to fall away if we truly are of faith. He won't let that happen. He won't let that happen to his people. He will see to it that we won't fall away. Why? Because he's going to grow us to maturity in him. This is just what he does for his people. This is what he has promised for his people and it's what he will do. So if you think about this passage we've just read, there's a rebuke for believers here at the start, not, not to neglect letting God do that, you know, grow us to maturity if we have come to faith in Jesus. And, and then there's a warning too after it for those who haven't actually yet come to faith. Don't let your heart harden against him. If we process those two things together in this passage, then we, we come to see uh, Jesus um, as who he is. And faith as what it is. To come to Jesus is to come to personally repent and trust in him. And having done that, to open our hearts fully to him. To open our lives fully to him and let him bring us to maturity. He's not just throwing around seed. He is growing a crop for his glory. If you haven't yet come to Jesus that way, can I urge you then on this scripture to to do that today? Entrust yourself personally and fully to Jesus. See the warning of the people spoken there in those hard verses, verses four to eight, who who seem close to all this, but, but never end up coming into the gospel. It's crucial. Forgiveness is crucial and it's only available through the sacrifice offered up for us by Jesus once for all sin on that cross. There is no other way of salvation. And if you have come to Jesus like so, then hear the teaching in this text. Don't be immature or sluggish in your faith, as verse 12 puts it. Open your whole life to Jesus. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, John the Baptist would say. And it may not be dramatic, mind you, that fruit. It may not always be apparent in your life, but as we live out a life of faith, we should slowly but surely see the signs of of the Holy Spirit working in our lives in this way. And that's what answers uh, what I think is actually the the great unsettling question that inevitably comes out of all this. How can I know where I do stand? Am I of genuine faith, you know, uh, one of those who who are forever safe in Jesus' hand? Or am I one of those who've only got some kind of superficial grasp on all this and actually near to being cursed? That's a great question. It's a vital question, isn't it? Surely we've all got to ask that of our faith. Examine yourselves, says 2 Corinthians 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You can know 
by looking for this growth that Jesus is working in his people. If you search your life and you can see signs of God changing you, growing you to maturity, to be more like Christ, that is, according to his word, then then you can know. Indeed, that's the answer given here in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, that is, of of those who, who, who never really do come to a true changing faith, Though we speak in this way about them, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. There is good fruit growing in the lives of those who belong to Jesus. Their lives are being reshaped in his name. They follow Jesus. They listen to Jesus as they go. And so they're growing now or being grown to be more like him. Those are the fruits that belong to salvation and from which they can know. Yes, they are people of true faith. Don't be discouraged if you look, though, and you see that you, yeah, you can see the sign, but you're only in the early stages of that growth. Like in, in, the, in the milk, needing the milk kind of category, as the first metaphor in chapter 5 had it. Don't be discouraged about that, but don't be content to stay that way either. If you have accepted Jesus as your Saviour, then push on and follow him. Listen to his word. Pray for his help in these things because he wants to, he intends to carry you to maturity. You will become skilled in the word of righteousness. But if you search and come up empty, you know, you search and you realise, wait a minute, not really sitting under Jesus' word not really letting his word change me, or maybe I'm just cherry-picking the bits that I like. Maybe I do good things, but actually, you know, if I think about it, I'm just trying to be the best possible me, as everyone in the world is doing, without any real connection to Jesus or his word or for Jesus' name in any of these things. If, if you can honestly search and honestly get to that kind of point of saying, uh, actually, no, that there's no real growth to become more like Jesus, then it may be that you still need to repent and truly come into the faith. In which case, the scripture here would say, please do. Please do. James says in his letter, faith without works, that's dead. That's not faith. So too, Hebrews here wants the whole church community to be clear on this, clear on their faith. Why? So that they can be sure of where they stand. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Again in verse 12, we desire that each one of you not be sluggish in your faith, but imitate those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. 
The call into faith is a call into a deep and complete repentance and, and trust in Jesus and what he did at the cross to pay for your sin. The call of faith that, that follows necessarily is a call into a deeper and more complete relationship with God. Your heart increasingly desires obedience to his word out of thankfulness for this salvation that he has secured for you. And so as unsettling as scriptures like this actually are when we read them the first time and even the hundredth time, they actually show us how to find clarity on our faith so that we can have assurance of our salvation. And if not, so that we can know clearly what we must do. These are good scriptures for our faith. And to that end, uh, take take hold for sure of the encouragement in, in verses 13 to 20 in the last part of our text, the clarity that this gives on the back of such a heavy scripture. Uh, if we summed up the whole letter so far, it would be something like, look, trust in Jesus and hold fast to that faith until the end. And, and so too here. So we can still sum it all up. Because what Christ uh, has done for us, what we trust in Christ for is, is eternal, brothers and sisters. It's unshakable. It is completely secure. God has sworn by himself on this, verses 13 through 18. God has promised with his word and sworn by himself. So our destination in Jesus is certain because the object of our faith is so reliable, is what it is. If he has made this promise and he has paid the price for our sin, then, then who or what could possibly keep us at bay? Be encouraged because our whole hope is founded on what Jesus has done. And so it's certain and true. We who have fled for refuge, verse 18, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. How good is that language? This is our sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We thought of that last week, the temple curtain that separated the holiness of God from all of us people, unholy as we are. No, our hope goes through that curtain. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And just like that, we're back in that familiar territory where we were last week with this reminder that Jesus is our high priest. He will intercede for us at the very throne of God forever. There is no other thing that could be necessary for the forgiveness that opens up the salvation we so need. Think about this. If he is our forerunner, then we too will follow through that curtain, and into the presence of God. So for this reason, true faith endures whatever life throws our way because Jesus has secured all of this, our forgiveness, our salvation, and he will bring us into the very presence of God. 
So today's passage has come as a bit of an interruption in the flow of thought in this letter about Jesus being our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, we see at the very end. Well, that was the very end of last week's passage, wasn't it, back in chapter 5 and verse 10. So all of this that we're thinking about today fits into that broader context of Jesus being our priest. And we'll get back to that next week since the letter returns there too. But today, don't jump over this bit. Pay very careful attention to the rebuke and the warning written here, like two caveats woven into that broader flow of thought, so that we can know for sure what true faith looks like and therefore where we stand. We must each personally trust in Jesus. And then we should open our hearts fully to his teaching so that we can be grown to to fullness under his good word. If we want to be found right with God in the end, then we, we must do this. We must examine our faith carefully against these things. Take this scripture, search your heart and probe, dig around in the soil in there and ask yourself, have I, have I personally repented and trusted in Jesus? And is that reflected in Christian growth in my life? Because eventually the one must lead to the other. And finally, be encouraged in all that today. Be encouraged in the faith and the journey of faith today. Encouraged to come to him and and to entrust everything to him. He's trusting in Jesus, not like uh, trusting in some fickle or fleeting thing. This is no fad or anything like that. This is trusting in the sure and certain hope of life forever with God. That he has promised to all who will but come to Jesus in true Simple faith. If you find yourself needing to be uh, put right with God today, if you need to put your trust in Jesus today or or renew your trust in Jesus today perhaps or, or maybe deepen your trust in Jesus today, then as always I'd love to chat or pray with you later. But so too as as I close in prayer, feel free to let these words be your words too if you like. Let's pray. Dear Father, we sit before you and we know the score on all these things. We know that we are sinful. We know from your word that uh, we therefore should rightly sit under your judgment. We have read in this letter, Lord Jesus, that you are the king of all things and so we recognise that our sin is actually against you. But we've also learnt in this letter that you are our great high priest and that we can petition you for mercy and so we do that too. Please forgive us our sin. We trust in what you have done for us, dying on the cross to receive the judgment of our sin and we want you now to change us and make us new according to your good word. So we ask for your spirit to be gently upon us, that we would feel his power making us new with our humble obedience and faith in what you have done for us and will yet do. Ready us then for the glory of God. Amen.
It occurred to me this week, thinking through that scripture, it might be hard now to move into communion for some of us. I don't know if you've had what kind of journey you've had coming to faith in Christ. If your journey's been anything like mine, uh, passages like this can, can be hard to process and they can put a lot of fear in you and they can put a lot of doubt in you. They can make you feel unsure about whether you can still partake in a sacrament like this. But I want to encourage you that if you are sitting here today, whatever your journey has been, if you're sitting here today and you acknowledge your sin and you repent of your sin and you trust Jesus to have died to pay for your sin, then I want to encourage you to come forward and receive of this sacrament that he gave us. And I thought today we might think of it as a feast. It doesn't look like much, does it? But it is truly a feast. What this symbolises is extraordinary. I've been thinking through Jesus' parables this week and particularly uh, got locked in Luke 15, the parable of the lost coin and the, and the length God goes to to bring that coin. Uh, uh, the parable of the lost uh, sheep and the length God goes to. And then just to make sure he, you know, we're not lost in the metaphors, thinking he's talking about money and livestock. He gives us the parable of the prodigal son. Struck by that parable, uh, factoring that into Hebrews and the journey of faith that Hebrews is leading us through, thinking about the prodigal son and, and the words of this son who's rejected everything of his father. And he stops and he says, wait. He comes to his senses and he says, you know what? I will arise and go to my father. Wow. And he says, oh, I'll say this when I get there. And he does say it when he gets there. But the father sees him coming, knows he's coming, sees him coming, runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, puts a new robe on him, shoes on his feet, puts a ring on his finger. Throw a feast, he says. Throw a feast. This one was dead, but now he's alive. Welcomed back into the father's arms. The other son doesn't understand all this. He says, you've got nothing to worry about. This is all yours already. So come and enjoy a feast today, I would say. Whatever your journey has been, if you sit here today repentant and trusting in Jesus, then that is the work of God's spirit in you. And he is going to grow you to maturity. This is just what he does for his people. As always, we'll take... Uh, a reflection song, you can use that time however you like, maybe on the back of Hebrews, uh, search, pray, repent, trust. Uh, at any point during the song, come forward and, and collect the bread and the juice. This is just simple gluten-free, uh, vegan, soy-free bread and, and regular off-the-shelf grape juice. It symbolises the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken and poured out for us and our salvation. When you collect them, uh, maybe even before you get here, feel the Father come out and kiss you, embrace you, put that new clean robe around you and new shoes on your feet and a ring on your finger to say, you are his, you are his. Collect the, the bread and the juice. Hold on to them when you get back to your seats, though, because as always, we're all going to eat this together because we are all in this together by the grace of God. I leave it with you.